Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets fans? Welcome back to episode number 97 of the Mets Up Podcast, presented by the 7 Line. We just wrapped up a beautiful, a glorious series sweep against those bums, the Washington Nationals. Bums. They were awful. They were terrible. And we absolutely dominated. It's one of the few times we've been able to say that, like, from first pitch to last pitch. Absolute domination. The Mets just proved they're a significantly better team than those lowly Washington Nationals. It really wasn't competitive at all. There's a lot of things to talk about in this series, a lot of great stuff. So we're going to be really, really high on the Mets here going into our big California road trip with the Dodgers, Padres, and Angels. So if you guys are enjoying everything you're listening to, everything you're seeing, make sure you're following us on all our social media at MetsUp on the YouTube channel, Mets Up Podcast. Probably won't be a video. I'm currently in... Burlington, North Carolina, actually technically Graham, North Carolina, and the quality suites in internet is horrendous. So I just, it's laggy. I don't know if we'll be able to get a video out for this. We'll see how it goes. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, drop us a rating, drop us a review. It really does help us out. And here we go. Let's bring in James. James, how we doing? Good, man. Good. Just coming off a nice little watch session for the Rangers game. Since we last talked, the Rangers have advanced the whole series. Big news. Dude, what an absolute rout tonight against the Tampa Bay Lightning. I was told we can't beat the Tampa Bay Lightning. I was told the Rangers could only score against backup goalies, but apparently that's just simply not true. Yeah, smacked around one of the best teams in the league. The Mets are playing well. The Rangers are playing well. It's a good time to be a New York sports fan. And also, I know I mentioned I'm in North Carolina. Shout out to, and I'm I'm so sorry. I forgot your name. It is 1230 at night. I am exhausted. I just played five innings of baseball, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we played against college athletes who are playing in a affiliated Major League Baseball League, so I'm gassed. But uh, shout out to him in North Carolina. You know who you are. We were in Burlington. Uh, big shout out to you, came out and was like, hey, I love the podcast. I saw you were coming out here, had to come out and support and say what's up. He also said to make sure to say what's up to you, James, as well. Hell yeah. Thanks, man. Nameless, yeah. faceless figure. Yeah, I know. He, he had a daughter. I'll, I'll give that much information. <laughs> Let's talk about game one, though. Game one, we had David Peterson on the mound. And honestly, it didn't start particularly great. Three runs in the first inning, and I went, oh, man, David. We this is not what we need against the lowly, lowly Washington Nationals. No, and you were a little scared after a Sunday night game against the Phillies. This was like a bit of a letdown spot, just being on Memorial Day. It wasn't a day game, which was nice. It wasn't a day game after a night game, but night game after a night game against a team that you know you should beat. Immediately, David Peterson does not have it. Command was all over the place. Gave up three quick ones in the first inning, and you get scared because you get scared about proverbially the Mets come returning back to being the Mets, but that didn't happen. Because these are not those Mets. These are these Mets. And we hit everything all night long against, like we're going to keep saying, the lowly, lowly Nationals. It all started in the first inning. Because if the month is May, the Mets dominate the first inning. It's crazy. It's crazy because 3 nothing down, 
we got to 3-1 at one point, I believe, with the bases loaded because Guillaume, Canna, Lindor, everybody was hitting. Like, Eric Fetty's trash. Eric Fetty's probably one of the 10 worst starters that, like, legitimately starts in Major League Baseball. I feel confident in that. But he, once in a while, just has those very, very good starts because his slider isn't really that bad. But got on him immediately. First four reach base against him. Guillaume, Canna, Lindor all had singles. Lindor's single drove one in, and P. Alonso had a walk. So four guys come to the plate. 30 pitches are thrown before Eric Fetty even records an out. Dude, and your boy threw down a live bet immediately. I threw that down for a live bet money line. I threw the Rangers money line. Had quite the day because obviously both of these teams ended up winning. That's a nice play. I've had an awful week betting because of those freaking Dodgers that we're going to play against, but I guess I'll talk about that in the preview. But then Jeff McNeil double play, which was the maddest we've seen Jeff McNeil get in weeks, but he restrained himself, only simply yelled into a helmet rather than the night sky, which was a welcome change. But that was just very nice to immediately answer that Peterson rough first inning with a few runs of our own and just make sure everybody knows that we are here to win this game. Like we know we're the better team. We're going to act like it. Yeah, no, the Mets keeping it close after that bad inning was super huge. And to be fair, it's not like the Mets runs really stopped. What did we get? Four in the second inning, two in the third, three in the fourth. Like it was just nonstop jumping on Eric Fetty, who was in this game for way too long. But also I can't blame Dave Martinez because who else is going to throw in this entire Nationals roster on the pitching side? Like we said in our preview last episode is horrendously bad. And the same thing happened in game two with Patrick Corbin, but four runs in the second, Nick Plummer, the newly minted folk hero of this team, had a big double. Luis Guillerme had another hit. Strong Marte had a home run. Marte and Lindor each had RBI singles again in the third inning. Nick Plummer hit another home run in the fourth inning, and then you look up and you're like, wow, I thought we were struggling here, and we're winning 12-4 to in the fourth. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Marte is so insanely hot right now. I know I was getting a lot of crap because when the Mets originally signed Starling Marte, and he had like that hot first week, I was like, man, I can't believe Starling Marte is met. And then he went a little bit cold. And I was getting crap for some people on Twitter. Angels fans of all people, which is crazy. And I found the tweet, went back, and was like, since this tweet on May 1st, Starling Marte is hitting like 360 with a 900 OPS. The dude has been on an absolute tear. And it continued this series, especially in this game against the Nationals. When he hits the ball in the air, shockingly, he can hit home runs. Like, he is a good ball player. Yeah, and he was part of this just complete and total domination from the Mets lineup. Every single player that started on Monday night had at least one hard hit ball. Pete and Guillaume were the only Mets with just one. Pete, that one being a solo home run, he hit in the eighth inning as a nice finishing touch in this wonderful game. Starling had four hard hit balls and three hits to go along with that home run that we just mentioned. Lindor and Canna each had three hard hit balls. And the top three of the Mets' order were just on a completely different level. Guillaume, who is still filling in for Brandon Nimmo in the leadoff spot. Charlie Marte, who's now taken over that two roll, just shoved it right in my face. And Francisco Lindor hitting third. Those three guys combined on Monday night were eight for 13, two walks, five runs scored, seven runs batted in, eight hard hit balls, and a home run. It's just, it's, it's sick. This is exactly what we envisioned when we thought about this Mets lineup going to the season is that the top of the order is going to get on base, generate runs, and that's exactly what they did in this game. And to be fair, it feels like for the last few weeks, this is exactly what's been happening because as you mentioned earlier, if it's the month of May, the Mets are scoring runs in the first inning. Literally, Mets play 29 games in May, including this game and then Tuesday's game. That was the last day of May. They scored in 16 of those 29 first innings. That's, like, actually insane. That's more than half. They scored more than half of their first innings. Like, no no, one, no teams do things like that. Dude, we also got, to, if we're going to talk about, like, in half of your games or whatever, Luis Guillorme, who, again, took over that, like, leadoff spot against righties because Brandon Nemo had been on the bench because of a nagging injury. Luis Guillorme, at one point, I think was 18 for 36 in his last 36 at-bats, which is a crazy thing to say. Like, I know people get hot, but Luis Guillorme, I mean, this entire team was so 
scalding hot. And it kind of all just came together in this game where everybody was hot, everybody was getting on base, and we just poured it on these Washington Nationals. Over the entire month of May, 18 games, 58 at-bats for Luis Guillorme. He had a 414 batting average, one home run, 12 runs scored, seven walks, seven strikeouts, 191 WRC+. Just the guy's fantastic. He's a fantastic baseball player, and it's crazy to see what the extended run he's had in this lineup, what he's been able to do with that playing time. King Louie, man. King Louie. We've been preaching the word of King Luis Guillorme for over a year, and it just feels like every episode now we, we you know, harp back on it, but for good reason. He has just been so good, so valuable. This dude deserves as much playing time as he's getting, and I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon, especially when he's this hot. And, I mean, we're also getting it from the next guy up, too, Nick Plumber. Dom Smith got sent down uh, this series. I know not this game. or Was it this game technically? No, right? It was, it was the after next one. this game technically. Yeah, and Nick, Nick Plummer's the reason why, because Nick Plummer seemingly just takes over the Dom Smith spot, because really, at the end of the day, a backup first baseman, not that big of a deal, especially when Mark Canna can play for your space, and Nick Plummer is just simply swinging a significantly better bat than Dom Smith has done all year. Dom Smith hasn't hit a home run since, I think, what, last July? I mean, like, I feel for Dom. I We want Dom to succeed. We've always been big Dom Smith fans here, but the fact of the matter is, and this is also something really refreshing, too, I think, with the Mets front office and just the this new Mets regime is that the Mets clearly are prioritizing winning. We saw Robinson Cano get cut earlier in the year. That was a winning move right there. That has nothing to do with the money. And Dom Smith even getting sent down, a fan favorite, a guy who's been here forever. But Nick Plummer just offers more right now. I don't know if you missed this news tonight. I knew you were out to dinner with your team in North Carolina, but Robinson Cano has been cut again. Yeah, I mean, he's terrible. Yeah. He's awful. I mean, we knew this. I'd been saying it as soon as we saw the first swing in spring train go, oh, this guy's bad. I don't know if he would have gotten hit in our game today. You mentioned with my team. I don't know if he hits against the Burlington Sock Puppets. I'm not sure. No, I mean, maybe he didn't. And the Dom move, again, it is sad, but this is a team right now that is clicking on all cylinders. And if you want to be in this lineup consistently, you have to be producing. And Nick Plummer seems to have a shot to run with this job. I also mentioned J.D. Davis going to get more of a run DH. He has also swung a significantly better bat than Dom this year. But again, Drew, going back to Plummer. Plummer has power. Plummer's a very good athlete. He uncorked a crazy throw from left field. I don't remember if it was Sunday or Monday. Seems to have a decent eye at the plate. He's been able to hit both breaking balls and fastballs early, at least not seem to be overmatched by either. If you can catch lightning in a bottle with a team like this, a team that's starving for that bench bat to take take control of a, a job, why not him? Yeah, no, I mean, he's been absolutely fantastic. Tricky Nicky, I think, is what everyone's calling him. I don't know if I really like that nickname or like not, that but that seems it's, to be what's hot. It's almost like, that's a bad connotation to it. Does he like steal yeah. things? <laughs> I'm not a fan of Tricky, Tricky Nicky as a nickname. There has to be something better for Nick Plummer. I mean, I, we're in New York. We got to figure out something better. I like the Plum Dog. The Ooh, Plum Dog. Plum, Plum Dog, Dog Millionaire. Yeah. Ooh, let's yeah, go. We said at the one, same yeah. time. <laughs> Gary also had an unbelievable quote about Nick Plummer from Monday's game. where He was like, it just makes sense that a guy with the last name Plummer is playing well in a town called Flushing. Ooh, that is a good point. As good as it gets. That you, is a- you can't teach that. No, that's that's why he's the best in the business. I mean, we know that Gary's the man, and that further proves that he is. And then, honestly, I like on the offensive side, just everyone was just mashing. Like you said, what, every single person had a hard-hit ball. Everybody made a contribution. The Mets were just dominant on the offensive side. Dominant. But before we wrap this game up, I want to quickly touch on David Peterson because he did really struggle in a game where you're winning... 12 to 4 in the fourth inning you would like to at least nurse your young starter through five get that win get back to the locker room feeling like you know you really did a lot to help and not being able to do that was a little bit disappointing and like 
we're just harping on this right now because the, the state of the Mets pitching depth and the fact that he does need to be a valuable contributor here if we want to make it through this June month, still with a massive lead in the division. It's just lucky that he was able to have his first bad start in a month, and no one will know this because we put 13 runs on the board. But the final line of four and two-thirds innings, six hits, four earned, four walks, and one strikeout against a not very good national team is just simply not going to cut it. And the problem, Peters, in this one was that he just totally, totally, utterly, and completely lost the command of his slider early, late, in the middle. He just could, he couldn't place it the whole night. If you go on Savant, go on Fangraphs, go on LB.com, you look at the illustrator of where his slider was being placed. He just he couldn't find the plate with it. He was either too low, it was too far outside, it was too far inside. And as a pitch that is only just about league average in terms of stuff, that slider, which is good. That's a big step up from what it used to be for Peterson. Placement of it is key. Command of it is going to be key. If he can command it where he wants, he's going to get anybody he wants out with it. If he can't command it anywhere, no one's even going to think about it. And with losing the command of that slider, it kind of reverted back to old Peterson, which was throwing lots of sinkers and change-ups trying to get guys out. And it didn't, didn't really work that well. So he took one on the chin. Didn't really matter because the team scored 13 runs. You just get him next time. I think Buck made a little bit of a statement, too, by taking Peterson out, basically needing one out to get the official win on the record. To be honest, David Peterson didn't deserve a win that game. No. The offense completely bailed him out. And I do think, old school Buck, we know that he likes, you know, he's just, he's a little bit of a different thinker than we normally see. I fully believe he took him out with one out there. Granted, he wasn't pitching well either. But I think that was a, you don't deserve a win. We're going to get someone else in here. Yeah, I don't hate that take at all. It did kind of all unravel a little bit even worse than before in that fifth inning. And they needed Kyle Holderman to come in, who did give up a run in David Peters instead. Yeah. Not like he really slammed the door on it. It's not like he even needed to, because the Mets were up by eight runs at the time. Or I think it was uh, ten runs even at the time. But what are you going to do? And I mean, that was pretty much the game. It was easy. It was simple. The Mets scored a ton of runs. The Nationals didn't. And we absolutely housed them. Can I be corny? Give me a corny line. Lots of fireworks from the Mets on Memorial Day. Oh, it's awful. That's terrible. (laughs) Terrible. Boo. Okay, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Let's go to game two. Game two. The offense was still good again. I I can't remember any time in my life that the Mets had 15 hits and 10 runs in back-to-back games, honestly. Just like, I think at one point, I saw 17 hits on the board. I went seven, like... I had watched the game. I had seen everything that had gone on. I hadn't missed a pitch. And I went, 17? That feels like an insane number. I was at this game with the whole Shiano clan. And in the fifth inning, when the Mets had put up there, I think it was their 10th run. It was the sixth. My mom was like, oh, you guys ready to go soon? <laughs> that's that's a classic mom move of like, 100%. well, the game's over. I yeah. mean, that was, that was a really good game, though, if there was ever one to leave early. I mean, the Mets were just in complete control. Definitely. I'm not going to hold it against my mom. She had major Tuesday scaries because New Jersey didn't use that many snow days this year. So she had a couple extra days off from Memorial Day. So this is her first day back after like what was a four day weekend. So yeah, you, you get that feeling inside when you're in Queens and you have to wake up at six in the morning in New Jersey. I get that. But of course, nowhere else to start but the first inning where the Mets got on the board again. Starling Marte, Massive two-run home run. His sixth of the year. He only had 12 all of last year with 50 stolen bases, so a little bit different of Marte. However, the catch that was made on this home run by the fan in center field was one of the most impressive plays ever made in a baseball stadium on the field or otherwise. This guy got national acclaim. It was unbelievable with the baby in hand on an absolute piss rocket to center field. Starting Marte crushed this baseball uh, with the baby in the hand. One-year-old. Just one-hand snag, stuck it. Like, it was nothing, and acted as if this was an everyday play. He had, like, no real celebration or anything. He was like, yeah, what what'd you want me to do? Of course I was going to catch this ball. Leaning over the railing, holding with the baby, looking back, basically, and grabbing it. Hannah Kaiser put him in an article. He was all over national baseball media for 24 hours. Allen, great. 
Great Gary play. was giving him a lot of love too. He goes, "Congratulations, young man! You just went viral." He was like, <laughs> he was all about like, "This is going to be the next bit great thing that just happened in baseball." No, of course, and I mentioned it before. This capped off a May for the Mets where they played twenty nine games and scored in sixteen first innings. It's like it's actually disgusting. I, um, that shouldn't even be allowed. Now that, that's how a team like this gets so hot and wins these games without any pitching virtually whatsoever. You get you score first every single game and you make the team think they're going to lose. We also didn't mention the Marte quote after the first game where they were like, "How did it feel?" to go down early i think it was to gelbzy and he was like sometimes you like going down just so we can come back that's crazy person talk right there that's like that's insane but that's also just playing against the nationals and you noticed it on monday and tuesday like lindor giorme and escobar were like throwing the ball to each other coming off the field like making funny catches like throwing it behind their back catching it over their shoulder like just doing ridiculous things these guys are having a ridiculous amount of fun out there and who wouldn't when you win every night and score in every first inning Dude, this is something we talked about last year. I was like, the Mets just kind of lack a little bit of that chip on their shoulder. Like, Stroman was kind of the guy who had the chip on his shoulder last year, but it felt like the rest of the team kind of lacked that edge a little bit. And it feels like right now these guys are playing well. They know they're good. They know they can come back from anything because seemingly they have because of that Philadelphia game. And it's just really nice that in a 3-0 game, like early on or when you go down early, that the team does not crumble at all. They're almost like, oh, okay, yeah, now we just now we have to score a little bit more than we normally would. Be like, yeah, we're down 3 nothing, but we haven't hit yet. Yeah, you, you haven't even given us a chance. I haven't even held a bat. How could I have scored? I haven't hit. Dude, it's just, it's, it's really nice. This team's clicking on all cylinders, like you said. You know, how about this? 16 times in 29 games, that's 10% of the season right now the Mets have already scored in the first inning. That's not even including April. I was looking back I at know. the stats today. I was trying to find a way on Savant's search to key in on every single time your team score the run because we do with the game boxes you're allowed to only sort by plays where run score but in the search function you're not so i wanted to get do a cut up of a video of every single first inning mets run for the month of may june 1st couldn't do it apologize to you guys sorry we might might have some smarter people helping us with content soon but see what i was gonna say though is that i i bet you that there's a year within the last 20 that the mets didn't score like more than 20 times in the first inning in a season. And we've done it 16 times in a month. I bet it was last year. I'll look it up right now. I can get that in less than five minutes. All right, we're back. Quick little search function on Excel. Last season, the entire year, the Mets only scored 43 times in the first inning not that they scored 43 total runs in the first inning they scored a run in the first inning in 43 of their games so a little bit more than a quarter of their games and in may they did it a little bit more than half of their games yeah which is crazy i mean this we know this Mets seems a lot better than Mets seems in the past but it just kind of shows especially this this past month the Mets have been hot as hell less than one third of the way through the season the Mets are almost half of the way to their first inning quantity of game scoring a run I totally botched that sentence, but you get what you know what I mean. Yeah, you guys understand what you mean. I mean, we're talking right now about future all-star Luis Guillorme, who I talked about was hot after game one. Game two, he just continued on. The dude just doesn't get out. Like, it, it just doesn't really happen. Technically demoted out of the leadoff spot because the Mets were facing lefty Patrick Corbin, and he just went back down to his, I don't remember if it was seven or eight hole, and he just kept getting hits. Two RBI single, and... There was a lot of cheers in this game. The Mets scored 10 runs in six innings. People were going crazy. There was no bigger cheer. Maybe besides when Nick Plummer got inserted into the game for defense late. But besides that, Luis Guillorme's seeing I single to score two runs in the third inning. People were just jumping up and down. The dude's an electric factory, and I want it to be known that we were first to Luis Guillorme. We were the first to be hip to him. And... 
that we're also going to be the first to publicly vouch that he needs to be the write-in for the All-Star game this year. I mean, I'll tweet it tomorrow morning. Well, actually, not tomorrow morning, because episode one will be out until tomorrow afternoon. But the second this episode goes out, tweet back us, Luis Guillermo for All-Star game for for all-star game 2022 like would you get that hashtag going yeah whatever whatever it's going to be you'll be able to find it but yeah. i mean we will be writing him in and i'll be using all my maximum votes every single day once it's opens up 100 percent. and then past that mark and francisco lindor top of the lineup staying hot each had rbi hits in the fifth this extended francisco lindor's rbi streak to nine straight games only the fourth ever met to do that and while escobar put a cap on this entire game scoring with a two-run home run the sixth inning and you look up and it was 10 nothing and my mom wants to leave yeah when eduardo escobar sent a two-run home run you know something's going well canna had four hits on the night as well like the team was just clicking and that's what happens when you you know have a 10 nothing victory and shout out to trevor williams who again i don't know how he does it i don't know why i don't know i really it really doesn't make sense watching it but trevor williams again pitches really really well and he owns Juan Soto, which also makes zero sense. Juan Soto, I'll talk about this more in game three because Keith just was like being outwardly mean to him on the telecast. He just seems so disinterested in playing baseball for the Washington Nationals right now. His at-bats were weird. He was doing, he was like shuffling more than usual. There were a couple times where he like actually stepped out in front of the plate and like was cheesing at people. He cheesed at Carrasco a few times today. He let a pop-up drop in front of him on Wednesday afternoon that was egregiously bad just like it, there was no reason for that ball to have dropped he took a step back he went roundabout and he just didn't really hustle or, or get dirty there in time it just one for 11 this series that's not the Juan Soto that we know he's hitting 230 right now we're not bad we're not a batting average podcast but Juan Soto career basically 300 hitter dude I was shocked at how little effort it felt like not just Juan Soto but this entire Washington Nationals team put into any of these games it felt like they just really I don't want to say, like, don't give a shit because I don't think that's fair, but it really doesn't seem like these Washington Nationals players care to be out on the field at all in the slightest. And Juan Soto, I think, is, like, the perfect example of, like, the dude's got all the talent in the world, is kind of in a shitty situation, things don't necessarily go his way, and you can almost see him starting to realize it, and I don't want to say, again, not care, but it doesn't seem like the intensity or effort is there as much as it has been in the past. Uh, definitely not as much as it has been in the past, but that's enough talking about how bad the Nationals are because the team is completely abysmal and has and is literally hopeless for their near and extended future. This team has no chance to be good, even within a five-year window. I would no. almost say there's no way they're going to win a division in 10 years, right? It'd be like, oh. Yeah, in the, in the 2020s, I think they might be done. I think that... While either Francisco Lindor is on the Mets, Ronald Acuna Jr. is on the Braves, Bryce Harper is on the Phillies, or Kim Kim Ng is with the Marlins, it seems, or Jazz Chisholm even more so, I don't think there's any way this team contends for a division. They probably won't for a wild card spot. I mean, we know Juan Soto's leaving the first chance he gets, so. I mean, if they're if they're stupid, they'll hold him to the end of his contract. If they even have a little bit of pride and self-decency, they'll trade him and actually get three or four players that could possibly help them. But the team, the roster, the system, they're devoid of talent. They're devoid of fundamental. This team... It's it, it's a pleasure to play against them, and I will I will yes. not I will not look past this opportunity again because the Mets were all over them. Second game of the row again with ten runs. Second game in a row, fifteen hits. And before we kind of wrap this one up again, because now we could talk about how bad the Nationals are for the whole next hour of the show. I really could. I really could. This was the Mets' last game without Brandon Nimmo starting. He came back for Wednesday's matinee, hit leadoff, played center field. Love that another future all-star. I really want to give a shout out to Luis Guillorme and Mark Hanna filling in at the top of the lineup for Brandon Nimmo, who we've seen evolve into one of the best leadoff hitters in baseball before our eyes. Nimmo didn't play for four games, first one being Saturday. Luis Guillorme was three for three with a walk and two runs scored. 
Sunday, back in the leadoff spot for Guillaume. Two for five with a double and a run scored. Monday, Guillaume. Two for four with a walk, ribby, three runs scored. And then Mark Hanna, tying a bow on it on Tuesday. Four for five. Hits his first four at-bats of this game. A double, two runs, and two RBIs. Dude, it's funny because I think Gary even brought it up in game two. Talking about how... We all know that Brad Nimmo is so sick in the leadoff spot, but the guys who have filled in for him, anybody else who's hit leadoff, I think combined was hitting around 750 at the time, which is crazy. I tweeted this a few months ago, or maybe I, I, I say a few months ago. This was like a month ago, maybe even two or three weeks ago. This, this seems is moving very fast and very slowly all at the same time. That the Mets for basically a decade did not have a true leadoff hitter since Jose Reyes left. Angel Bagan tried to do it for a little while, and Brandon Nemo has been doing it for a few years now, but I, don't, I wouldn't say that really most Mets fans accepted him as a really elite leadoff hitter until probably even at some point last year. And now the Mets have at least three, possibly even four or five very good leadoff hitters on one roster in the same lineup at the same time. No, it's crazy. It's crazy the depth that this team has seemingly come to, and we saw it all, honestly, this series, Game 1 and Game 2. Every single person made an impact, stepped up, and ended up being valuable to this team. And that's why we won the first two games. We won the series right there. But like you said, game three, we had the matinee on Wednesday. And again, just really, really great baseball by the Mets. Just better than the Nationals. Yeah, it was it was a fine game on Wednesday. But I could definitely tell while you were in North Carolina actually playing baseball, you probably didn't catch most of this. Because I wouldn't say this was the most relaxing, good, dominant, we're better than you baseball game. This game was more of the fact that the Mets just played like an average baseball game and the Nationals played a horrific one. Yeah, I was I was playing my own baseball game. So I was really much uh, box score watching and seeing highlights. So yeah, when you see highlights and one team scores five runs and the other team scores zero, you're going to say, hey, we played a lot better than them. Yeah, I, I don't know if it happened. There was a lot of instances early on in this game where if one bounce or two went the Nationals way, it looks like they very easily could have won it. But in true Mets 2022 form, the depth came in and picked everybody up, and there's nobody in the organization who had a better day on Wednesday than the trio of Gary, Keith, and Ron in the SNY booth. These guys were in rarefied form this entire game. They were telling stories about Ronnie and Keith, about their dads watching them and their interactions with them in a baseball sense because Cookie Carrasco's dad was at the game, and he was very much showing the SNY broadcast. Keith, we know, having the hot and cold relationship with his dad. First time ever that Carlo Car- Carlos Carrasco's dad watched him pitch professionally. That was his first time. Why? Was that the first, first time ever? First time ever. I don't know the reasoning behind it. My dad told me about it. I said Buck, after the game, got choked up talking about it, that he had to take a legitimate pause and be like, Whew. my dad said he got verklempt, which is not a word I've ever really heard verklempt. my dad use before. That's crazy. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. And also, there's no need to ever conduct a paternity test on Carlos Carrasco because he is the spitting image of his father. <laughs> there's no question at all about who is his dad because it was that guy sitting right there. He had a couple of rings on the fingers and he was really hanging on every pitch. I can't believe the first time I've ever seen him professionally. That's unbelievable. But how insane is that? Carlos Carrasco's 35. <laughs> Why do you wait till now? <laughs> I guess he was like, I'm not going to fucking Cleveland. I guess that's true. He's all like Carlos Carrasco's been through, been through a lot too, maybe native Venezuelan, but Keith was talking about the hot and cold relationship with his dad, how every single time he had to visit his dad, he prayed to God he was hot because if he was in a slump, all his dad would do was coach him when he was like oh, a 30-year-old former MVP in the major leagues. And Ronnie, total opposite of that, was like, my dad refused to catch me after the day I turned seven. I was already, I was already too good for him. He just pushed me off to other people. And then those guys were also telling stories about their debuts because Evan Lee made his first career start for the Nationals, talking a lot about Mr. Carrasco, like I said. Keith, like I said before, was just giving it to Juan Soto he was saying that like this is also Keith not really understanding the exact lay of the modern game sometimes we see this I was about to mention that yeah he said that Soto has to be kicking himself for turning down that Nationals contract from the offseason 
which I think was like 10 years for 350 million. And I was like, oh, I don't think you know what's going on here, Keith. This this is like super, super old guy stuff. And if yeah. you guys could possibly see a video version of this, I'm like cringing because this is a conversation I had this weekend with my uncle. Shout out to Uncle George. He was talking about Aaron Judge turning down the big Yankees contract and saying he was an idiot. And I was like, but he's going to make way more than that now. Like he's playing at an MVP level. I think that was a great movie. He's like, yes, but you need to be grateful about the the money that is offered to you. And that's basically... Kind of, I think, how Keith probably felt this weekend, too. There was a lot of weird, like, jinxing of Juan Soto where I was like, I just, I'm waiting for him to hit a nuke, and then it's going to be a Twitter clip, and everyone's going to be like, look at the Mets announcers talking about Juan Soto not being good, and then he actually is sick. Luckily, it didn't happen, but it was weird. The Mets, like, Gary and Keith specifically, were taking a lot of shots at Juan Soto this weekend. Or weak. There was a moment where I think SNY was aware of what you were saying. And as Keith was like saying whatever about Juan Soto, like doing the shimmy or making eyes back at Carrasco, SNY popped up the graphic <laughs> highest OPS ever before your 24th birthday and like 1,000 or more plate appearances. And it was like Melot, Eddie Matthews, <laughs> Hank Aaron, Juan Soto, Ted Williams. Like, oh, okay. And now I remember he's a historically great player. But. They were also just on the opposite of this, throwing heaps and heaps of love onto Luis Guillorme, saying how how in the zone he looks and how amazing he looks as a regular player and how we just need to consistent that bat to unlock this. He said that um, Keith gave a great analogy because Guillorme said that his swing just feels as good as ever felt in his life right now. And it's like he doesn't even have to think about it. He just goes up there and he gets to execute every single time. Bang, bang, bang. Keith was like, when you're hitting like that, you feel like you're in a rocking chair and you're just very easy back and forth back and forth you see it you hit it you see it you hit it keep moving on they were also talking a lot about johan because this was 10 year anniversary of johan's no hitter i was at the game on tuesday but of course me and my family are habitually late to everything and it took us two hours to get from new jersey to Queens, so we missed the entire celebration i did get a picture snap one with johan during the game which i'm not going to tell our listeners how that happened but that, that's a <laughs> that story for our years only they were talking a lot about Johan and how everybody around that no-hitter was, like, very emotional. How, like, Terry still gets choked up thinking about it. And how did, I don't know if you saw the press conference Terry and Johan did, but Terry says he had a lot of sleepless nights thinking about how that day affected the rest of Johan's career. Yeah. And Johan put his arm around him and said, get some sleep. Don't don't worry about it. Dude, I cringe because Steve Gelb's in game two, because that's, I think, when Johan was technically at the stadium. Asked Johan about, like... Do you ever think about how your career was never the same after that game? And I was like, oh, man, that's an awkward question. Johan's like, yeah, I think about it. But also at the same time, like I wouldn't have changed anything. I was like, that's kind of a cool answer because like you could totally be uh, bitter about how it ended. Because let's be honest, that game ended Johan Santana's career. 100%. But also a guy like Johan had to look up and be like, I already won multiple Cy Youngs. I already been to the playoffs a few times. And looking around this Mets roster that I had, I probably wasn't going to ever get there again. And also just knowing my own limitations, I was never really going to reach that mountaintop again in any other like full season form. And either Ronnie or Keith had an interesting quote about that. Actually, they heard from Adam Wainwright. And I don't know if it was passed on to them directly from Wainwright or from Wainwright to Santana, but basically he said that as a pitcher, there's always a moment in your career where you know you just have to let go. And whatever happens, happens for better or worse. And coaches, teammates, everyone has to be aware that at some point, we're letting this go, and we don't know if it's ever going to be the same, but you basically have to leave it all out there just to get your moment in the sun. And that's what Johan thought of that no-hitter as, and now he's immortalized in Mets history, and a moment that, again, was very emotional for all Mets fans out there. Yeah, he talked about hearing stories about people like crying in the stands. He's like, kind of kind of crazy for me just throwing a no-hitter. I think Ronnie said he cried 
after the game because like all and we we have had an instance where we had a conversation with david cohen at some point in the recent past i I think i can say that right yeah i think so i think that can be public knowledge yeah and david cohen said that as a mets pitcher a good mets pitcher like everybody kind of had that murmur it was like i want to be the first guy to do this i want to be the first guy to do this like i'm going to be the first guy no i'm going to be the first guy and the fact that a guy like johan did it who was like actually a generationally great starting pitcher someone who i've said before should be in the hall of fame should be more of a part of baseball lore is one of the best pitchers of this modern generation for him to get it and not some other guy who's just a no-name or journeyman while i would have had a different type of appeal the fact that's a guy like Johan, who there was a big trade, a big contract, a good run, had a lot of success with the team relatively to how the team was in that era anyway, it gives more appeal to that no-hitter. I think it solidified Johan Santana as a Met because mm-hmm. I think without that, you remember the good times with Johan, but really what did it amount to? But even with that, if Johan Santana did ever get the call from the Hall of Fame, he's a twin. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, there's okay. no doubt he's a twin yeah. first. Yeah, I, w- I would never think he's a Met over the twin, but I'm saying I think like in Mets fans' hearts, in Mets fans' brains, that no-hitter makes him a Met. Whereas if he didn't throw out no-hitter, he's just a great guy who ended up pitching for the Mets at the end of his career. Yeah, for sure. And that's honestly probably the difference between how like a Johan is remembered as a Met versus like... Pedro. Yeah, Pedro. That was a good one. Like, Pedro yeah. was a good Met, and there were good moments, and it could have been more, but still never had that signature Mets moment like Johan Santana was able to have and cement himself as a part of our like culture. Now, I'm reading the notes that you put, and again, didn't catch a lot of Game 3. I'm seeing Ode to Russell Martin. What the hell is this? This game got wacky towards the end, which was crazy because it was only a 2 nothing game by the 6th or 7th inning. So this was a tight game because it's a game you also wanted to win before a 10-game road trip. And Gary or Keith, well, someone was like, Riley Adams looks a lot like Buster Posey. And they were like, yeah, kind of, I guess so. But And then Gary was like, well, we also, honestly, we're here. We might as well mention there was another big catcher retiree from the past week, Russell Martin. And the fact that Russell Martin was just like a very good catcher is going to kind of get swept away in baseball history. He's from Montreal. Not a lot of baseball players come out of Canada. Great story. I think his dad was uh, like playing music on like the Montreal Metro to like save money. Great guy. Uh Numbers are incredibly similar across the board. Yadier Molina gets no love. But no, but that's I mean, not... it's, there's more to a catcher than having numbers. But sure, you can, you can keep your shtick going. And then also, again, this game got very wacky. Keith was talking about how chilly it got at the ballpark. And then Gary was like, we all agreed on wearing the polos today. Like, you you were the one who initiated the polos today. He's like, I'm going to go get a sweater in between innings. And Keith popped back out in a Yale sweater. <laughs> In front of Ronnie, who went to Yale, for all the people who don't know it. And he was like, how's it look? And they were like, where'd you get that? And they thought, like, he stole one from Ronnie. He was like, oh, I went to the Yale club last night. I was like, oh, okay, Keith. And then Gary was like, oh, it's kind of ironic, because you're the only one in this booth who actually did not graduate in Ivy League. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 I, I wanted to go I wanted to go to Ivy Leagues when I was younger. My dad told me I was going to be a ball player. And then Gary had a dig. He was like, I think your dad realized how much uh, Yale cost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was a classic Gary Keith and Ron games. Guys were having so much fun in there. They were they were laughing, they were smiling, telling stories. Just, the baseball game, which was oddly close but didn't feel close, was just kind of happening around their show. Yeah, and I mean, in this game, like you said, Carrasco on the mound, he ended up pitching fine, I guess is the, the way I would say it. It was okay. He had an up-and-down game. He had five walks, which was a career high. Also, at one point in the second inning, he just totally lost all, everything. Threw 11 straight balls, first time in his career he ever did that, and walked three consecutive batters, also first time in his career he ever did that. He, his most walks in a game all year was only three entering the day, and he had walked three batters in a row that inning. And you kind of just like saw him struggling to grip the baseball. He kept like rubbing his arms, looking for sweat, and it was a cool day in the city, so there wasn't anything there. But he wound up getting out of that second uh, inning kind of mini rally. I'm not going to call it rally because there were no hits, but second inning trouble. 
There was some trouble in the fourth inning. Nationals had first and third with one man out. He got D. Strange Gordon to ground into a double play. After a 0-0 game, Davey Martinez kept putting the bunt bunt sign on, trying to do a safety squeeze, which thank you, Davey Martinez. Thank God that these last two series, the Mets have played against the two worst managers in the National League, I could say, with some confidence there. Also, it's very funny that a guy like D. Gordon... He's been in the league over 10 years now, at least 10 years. He has an image, and the entire Mets booth has stuck with it. They were like, it's hard to double up D. Strange Gordon, one of the fastest guys yeah. in the league. Like, D. Strange Gordon, former batting champ. You don't want to take the bat out of his hands. I was like, all right, well, I don't think either of those things really are pertinent right now. But sure enough, whatever. Dude's but, like six years away, or six years removed from being a okay baseball player. Yeah, like, I, think, I, think he, I think he is still pretty fast, but he's not nowhere near like the fastest player in the league label he used to no. have. But that was it. This was not Carrasco's best game by any means, but it was good enough to win against a bad Nationals team. Coincidentally, though, he had 15 whiffs, which was the second highest total of the season, and his most since May 3rd, that doubleheader game we watched him in against the Braves. And he brought back that very evenly dispersed pitch mix I talk about a lot of times with him. He threw his fastball, changeup, sinker, slider, and curveball each at least 13% of the time. Fastball and changeup led the way with 32% uh, usage rate and 25% usage rate, respectively. And each of those pitches, each of those pitches were getting a solid amount of whiffs. The changeup looked especially nasty. It was a good game overall. Good game overall. He battled. He worked hard. Maybe he was even nervous just with his dad out there watching professionally for the first time. A lot of things at play here, but good to see him be able to wiggle in and out of trouble on a day where he definitely didn't even have his best or even like kind of his best stuff. Yeah, no, he ended up doing just enough. And then, I mean, on the offensive side, we have to talk about the one guy who basically carried this team offensively today, which raise your hand if you thought Tomas Nito was going to be that guy. Uh, I mean, if you watched the game, you did. But if you didn't, yeah, Tomas Nito was like, hey, uh, I'm a good hitter today. How about that? Dude, Tomas Nito was completely locked in this one. I was shocked when I saw the lineup when he was in it because this is the third game in a row that Tomas Nito started and a day game after a night game, which is very, very, very surprising. But I could see a veteran like Carrasco much preferring throwing to Nito rather than Mazika, especially we've seen the issues with Mazika and Bassett. I don't want to say issues, but I just say maybe uh, communication pitfalls. Yeah. And Carrasco similarly has a lot of pitches in his toolbox. He doesn't throw them all as consistently as Bassett does, but he has a lot. But Tomas Nito, man, four hits, three RBIs, and four hard-hit balls. That's big because Tomas Nito at times looks like he's swinging a piece of wet spaghetti through some thick marinara sauce. Yes, none of those balls in play were even over 101 miles an hour, but they were all over 95 miles an hour, so it happens. And a couple of these plays kind of probably shouldn't even have really been hit. One of them was a one-hopper to Cesar Hernandez that he tried to do like the the no-look pick, and he did make a nice pick on it, but kept it in front and then just kind of missed it when he tried to grab it. So generous home, home hometown's ruling on a hit there. He had a very casual single in center field that D. Gordon misplayed for the Mets' first two runs of the game. And then he had kind of a soft, again, it was a hard hit, but a softer relative line drive to left field for Yadiel Hernandez, who had one of the most lackadaisical baseball games I've ever seen in my entire life on Wednesday. He dove for this ball directly in front of him, four feet away. It took one hop and went clear over his head right all the way to the wall, and he stood there and just looked at it like, huh as D. Gordon came from center field to retrieve it. So, some misplays. The Nationals are a bad team, though. They make misplays. And this four-hit game pulled Tomas Nilo's full-season batting average up to two fifty three. That's shockingly high. Isn't that crazy? He's higher than the league average. That's insanely high for Tomas Nilo, who's like a 190 hitter. Yeah, his OPS still only sits at five sixty five, but we don't need to know that. This is, this is not an advanced stats podcast. No, we OPS. I'm only interested batting in batting average. average. Yeah, exactly. We 
We're batting average guys for this purpose. Lindor also continued the RBI streak to what ten games now, which 10 I think games? is tied with Mike Piazza. Second Mets ever. Record? No, I don't think it's tied for Mike Piazza. Maybe, ah, maybe this. I know Mike Piazza's done it twice, but these are the only two Mets ever to have an RBI in ten consecutive games. And Lindor over these ten games has twenty RBIs in total. Yeah, but he, James, he stinks though. No, I know he's bad. He also makes way too much money. He's like not as good as he should be. He's like he should be the top five player. Really, he's only a top like fifteen player. Yeah, if I was paying a guy three hundred forty million, I'd expect him to have thirty RBIs in ten games. If I had enough money to pay a guy three hundred forty million, I probably wouldn't give a half of a shit about what was going on with this team. <laughs> Dude, somebody on Twitter I tweeted about Lindor being good, and they're like, "Good enough where you're paying him three hundred forty million dollars," and I'm so happy because it seems like the tide's turning a little bit. I had like four or five people reply to that guy be like, Mark's paying him zero dollars. Yeah. This is not Mark's money at all. Like, what are you talking about? And also like, fine. Yeah, also don't care don't care at all because um, the dude is really good. It's fantastic. I think he's like third in all of Major League Baseball and RBIs right now behind Pete and Jose Ramirez. I mean, he's got a slash line of 260, 346, 444, and 790, which I know 790 doesn't sound great, but you have to remember that the league is adjusted now because OPS is just down across the league in general so that puts him at an OPS plus of 127 which I don't know 27% better than league average feels like a pretty good mark for a guy who's also elite defensively at shortstop it's fantastic I mean hey I'm also old enough to remember early in the year when Seth Lugo was cooked yeah and Seth Lugo threw two very good innings some of the best innings I've seen him throw all year he's just a very good reliever again and now it seems like they're nursing him back as his arm has gotten more warm to being a guy who can throw multiple innings which with Carrasco only being able to throw five no off day, heading to Los Angeles for four. Lugo being able to throw two, especially also with a very peculiar decision to pitch Drew Smith and Joely Rodriguez in the 10 nothing game on Tuesday. I thought that was kind of weird, but I also could have seen Buck being like, we're probably going to beat them, beat the brakes off them again tomorrow. Like, I got to get the 18 bullpen some work before we head to LA. These guys can't not pitch for four days and then yeah. go see Trey Turner and Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts with 15 home runs in a month. Like, I can't let them do that. These guys need to actually get some game reps in. We saw Tampa Bay Lightning struggle with that. Nine days off, those old legs looked heavy against the young Rangers, the kid line. But Seth Lugo looked great. Alavino lost his face two batters, and it looked like it was all falling apart. And then he got the slider back out for the next three batters, and no one could touch him. It's so crazy. I talked about this with Diaz. But for a guy to walk such a fine line between being completely horrific and completely unhittable. Yeah, that's Adovino. And Diaz, who also had a very yeah. clean ninth inning, got right out of it. Mets fans were also bitching that Diaz was coming in a five-run game. But the Mets scored three runs in the bottom of the eighth inning, and Diaz was already yeah. throwing. And he hadn't thrown since Sunday. Like, it's, it's Wednesday, guys. You guys get some work. Stay regular. Because then he's going to come in in L.A. He's going to be cold. He's going to be erratic. You're like, oh, why isn't he pitching a week? So you yeah. didn't want him to pitch in the five-round game, remember? And he had like a 10-pitch inning. He looked great. Sometimes there's no winning with people. But luckily, at least with us, and I'm assuming our listeners of the podcast, we're all rational Mets fans here. We know that this team is good. We know Diaz is good. We know Lindor is good. We know that this Mets team is legit. And having that sweep on the Nationals puts up, what, 18, 19 games over 500, which is a sick sick cushion going into this road trip it's 35 and 17 which if you could double your losses and still not reach your wins that's beautiful yeah oh i love that i love thinking that you could lose 17 straight games and still have more wins than losses also six wins in a row for the mets 21 consecutive scoreless innings for mets pitchers back-to-back shutouts just all around good things coming out of the series before a very tough one yep no it was awesome and that's pretty much it for the series easy clean sweep we teased a little bit on twitter that we were going to do a mailbag episode so that's exactly what we're going to do here answer some of your guys questions from twitter again make sure you're following us at mets up you'll be able to get involved in these we do these about once a week going to sort through these questions start answering some of them 
This one comes from Fat Harvey, which, but Jesus. He's I, active. I, active I shouldn't have even read that. Yeah, at bfritz79 with the June gauntlet coming up. What's the worst acceptable record over the 10 games? Also, do we boo Syndergaard if we face him? Uh, I will answer the boo Syndergaard one. Yes, um, Syndergaard is, I think, centimeters away from being a rat. I think it's close, at least in my books. I think I think he's teetering on the edge. I think he's still okay, but I think he's really close to being a rat. And I got to admit, I really enjoyed seeing him getting shelled by the Yankees the other night. That was really nice to see, especially with the Mets playing so well and the Angels on like a five-game losing streak. So that was cool. A worse acceptable record to me, I think like we're playing 10 games right on the road. Yeah. I think three and seven That's exactly is probably the worst like acceptable the worst, record. The worst that I would accept is losing every series but winning a game or getting swept by the Dodgers and being able to win one of the series against the Angels or Padres. If they at least squeak three out, go three and seven, and just wind up after this road trip of being 38 and 21 with an bah. eight-game lead, the NL East, I'd say I think bah. we're probably still okay. This will be the toughest stretch basically of the entire season without any, again, really <laughs> ace-type pitchers in your rotation here. That's the worst acceptable. I'm praying if we rip five and five, if we can get two from the Dodgers and then and then win one series, Padres or Angels lose the other one, Padres Angels. Angels also don't look that good right now, and the Padres have gotten cold again. And the Dodgers just got fucking swept by the Pirates. I am so yeah. mad at the Dodgers right now. Oh, I hate them so much. Yeah, I know, jerks. but this is also like a perfect time for them to be like, oh yeah, we ha- we remember how to play. We're not playing the Pirates. Well, that's anymore. why I'm good. That's why I'm gonna be so mad about this because they just lost three straight games to the Pirates. Pirates also took my money on Saturday night when Brian Hayes' first home run of the year off of Taylor Rogers in ninth inning, and the Dodgers are gonna wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, the Mets are coming to town. Let's score 15 runs. Fun fact about the Pirates, the best record in the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> wow, that's a random stat. Yeah, I know. How did, how did I come up with that one? <laughs> I mean, Why we, is that significant at all? We used to look at the Lugnuts or something else out there. I don't know. It could be some other teams. <laughs> Semi-pro, double A. Yeah, no, I think I think three and seven is kind of the spot we're thinking is the absolute worst. worst. And I also don't think the Mets are going to do it. I think the Mets are going to actually be kind of fine on this road trip. I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, the way the Mets bats are rolling right now, the Dodgers pitchers aren't exactly the world beaters that we're used to seeing recently. Like Tony, Gon- I mean, I would say we could save mostly for the Dodger preview, but their rotation with Walker Bueller being kind of meh, Julio Rios being kind of meh, TB being suspended, and Clinton Kirsch on the IL, like, it's beatable. It's not. These, these, you're not going to be facing the aces that you're used to. You're going to see Tony Gonsolin. You're going to see Tyler Anderson. Like these aren't these aren't guys who you should not be able to hit against, especially with the way the Mets lineup is playing. So three and seven would I think be the worst case scenario. And I think yeah, and five hundred gravy. Anything after that, I'm throwing a party. Yeah, anything after that, we're we're pretty fucking sick. I got a good question <laughs> for you here because I know uh-huh. I know the answer. It's going to be super easy. And I think you might have read it as well from Matt Young at Matt Young five four seven. Should the Mets consider signing Dallas Keuchel for more pitching depth despite his struggles? It seems like no risk, high reward type of move. So here's the thing I'll tell you, Matt. There's, the, yeah, I agree there is no risk, but there is absolutely no high reward. Dallas Keuchel is not the Cy Young Award pitcher that you saw, what, six years ago? However long it was back in 2016. Dallas Keuchel stinks. That guy's horrible. There's a reason nobody has laid their hands on Dallas Keuchel after he was good. It's because he's not good. It's because he's bad. I think if the Mets were to sign a guy like Dallas Keuchel, that would signal to me that we're in deep trouble. I've also heard that Keuchel's a bit of a horror, though. But um, Oh, Keuchel's a big loser. I've heard that he is unremorseful about the cheating that went on in Houston, and that is a big, big problem in the clubhouse. I just, I hate when people say things like they see a guy's name, they they recognize it, they remember that wildcard game he threw against the Yankees in, I believe, 2015, and they're like, Dallas Keuchel could be a good pitcher, 
low risk, high reward. The risk for pitching Dallas Keuchel is losing the game you you played that day. Like Andy Martino returned from the depths of hell to finally tweet, and there was like, there's no there's there's no risk assigning Dallas Keuchel. It's like, yeah, you're risking the game that he pitches. That is a risk. Yeah, dude, Andy Martino also for the first time in whatever it was a month plus that he tweeted about Dallas Keuchel fucking limited his replies. So you know what that tells me? He knew it was fucking stupid. He knew it was a dumb tweet, yet he still did it. I disagree with that. I think most Mets fans think that signing Dallas Keuchel is a good idea. But just like to run through Dallas Keuchel's strikeout rates over the last few years, 2017, 21.4%, 2018, 17.5%, 2019, 18.7%. 2020, 16.3%, 2021, 13.2%, 2022, 12.2%, with a 12.2% walk rate in his handful of starts this year. Dallas Keuchel, maybe if you gave him a full offseason with a new club, they could find something he could do. Maybe there's one of his pitches that is performing significantly better than the rest. I see that actually right now he even this year had three pitches with a whiff rate about 20%, which isn't exactly good, but it's also not exactly awful. Maybe, again, like his chase rate is still good, but when people chase, they still make contact because no one whiffs against Dallas Keuchel because the stuff isn't really that great. It's bad. His changeup still has a lot of good drops. Same with his sinker. So maybe, again, there is something within Dallas Keuchel that you could be like, we can create something out of this, but probably not in a week. You probably can't turn Dallas Keuchel around and have him even pitch one game effectively before... Max Scherzer is due back. Like, I just don't... He's bad. He's really bad. He was cut for a reason. The White Sox desperately need pitching. Like, they're opting to go with Jimmy Lambert over Dallas Keuchel. If that gives you any sense of how well they view him internally. This is an organization, too, that, like, feels like they would love Dallas Keuchel for no reason. I'll just give you guys some numbers of guys who have similar FIPs over the same time of Dallas Keuchel from 2016 to now. Um, Jeff Samarja, Matt Andrees, Chris Stratton... Jake Odorizzi, like, I mean, Odorizzi's probably the better of, of all this, but, like, there's some names out here where, like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. There is no risk. I agree in the no risk, but the high reward is just undeniably incorrect. Dallas Keuchel at his absolute best is a five starter. There was a point in 2020 where Dallas Keuchel actually was effective over the 63 inning shortened season his whip was right around one his era was under two that era wasn't like a real era because only 60 innings but he was effective and in that year he really like tightened up his repertoire to throwing basically the same amount of sinkers cutters and change-ups and those pitches all as far as dallas keichel's arsenal like have relatively above average movement profiles but then for some reason over the last two years he's back to throwing that sinker 50 percent of the time and he gets hammered he's throwing kind of still same amount of changes but significantly less cutters a pitch that was effective for him so i think maybe maybe keichel will be better than thomas Sapucky. I'll, I'll i'll give him that like he'll probably be more effective than thomas Sapucky over the next couple of starts maybe a couple of weeks but there's no way that Dal- you guys should think dallas keichel could come in and be like a useful player over the long term for the new york mets no, it's just like simply not very good. No. All right, here's some fun ones. A couple of people, Sebastian Cazorla, Mac, at Same Old Mets fans. You guys both tweet us about Nick Plummer. And basically the idea is, what can we expect from him moving forward? And does this kind of signal the end of Dom Smith with the New York Mets? I don't think that this signals the end of Dom Smith with the New York Mets. I don't think that's the case. I think right now Dom Smith has zero value, so you can't even really trade him for anything, which kind of sucks because maybe we could have traded him for something at some point this year. But... I think more so with Nick Plummer. I think Nick Plummer at least gives you capable outfield defense with Dom's bat right now. I think his bat is significantly better than Dom's right now. I'm pretty invested in Nick Plummer actually becoming a a hitter that can be good. I just I see like the physical profile. The guy is an athlete. I see the fact that he's early put the ball in play at 113 
miles an hour and only a few batted balls. Like some of the guys in Major League Baseball this year haven't hit a ball as hard as Nick Plummer, Jock Peterson, Byron Buxton, Trey Turner, Manny Machado, he Brian Hayes. None of these guys have put the ball in play 113 miles an hour. Nick hmm. Plummer has. Nick Plummer is a guy who's had good plate discipline during his time in the minors. We've seen him draw a couple tough walks already in just a very small sample in the majors. We've seen Nick Plummer, I mentioned it before, be able to turn on inside fastball with legit velocity and be able to spit on a curveball and slider that came into a similar spot. That shows me he has at least some recognition of breaking balls. And the other big thing about Nick Plummer, this kind of stupid baseball stuff right here, but he was cut by the St. Louis Cardinals. And if we know anything about about young outfielders yes. that are cut by the St. Louis Cardinals, they almost have a 100% expectance rate of becoming good Major League Baseball players. <laughs> Randy Rosarena, Adolis Garcia, am I forgetting anybody else? Rosarena was traded for Libertor, so that was a real move that was made. But Okay, fair. And I guess, I mean, not cut, also trade. They let Tommy Pham go way before they should have. Adolis Garcia, they cut him loose for no good reason. Like, the Cardinals seem to just think they have more outfielders than they always do, and they always seem to be good elsewhere. Yeah, no, they seem to have careers elsewhere. I, I was really, uh, I felt great when our guy Jacob Resnick put out a tweet, and I think everyone thought it, but no one ended up doing it. Was Michael Conforto swing and Nick Plummer swing next to each other, and it was like we didn't need Conforto, we got Nick Plummer, and he's got the same swing. Like who cares? Yeah, I saw a lot of tweets like that, like showing. I think Jolly Olive had one too, the side by side of the swings, and it looks similar. Sure, I mean. Not that we're like swing instructors here, but we see a left-handed hitter with power. We're like, okay, we have something. Definitely. No, I like Nick Plummer. I'm, I'm interested to see what he's got here. He is, at least at the absolute worst, way better than some of the outfielders that we've seen the Mets trot out there, like Aaron Altair, and I don't even want to think of some of the other names, but he's always the one I think of who is just so fucking bad. He looks like a ball player. He's hungry. He's athletic, Like, and he hit, he's hit the ball really, really hard already, so keep riding. Okay, now to get off of the fun baseball topics here, Let's just talk, or to get off the serious baseball topics, let's talk some fun ones here. Steve Miller, what's your go-to meal at the ballpark? Main item, side, and drink. I'll get it started. I love a glizzy. We're talking hot dogs. If you don't know the cool, hip internet lingo, always got to get a hot dog at the game. Sides, don't really do. Maybe maybe a pretzel. I like a pretzel. A pretzel's a good side. The french fries at City Field are fucking horrible. Nathan's french fries are deplorably bad. Don't pay your money for them. I will say that. At City Field. Nathan's french fries at Nathan's are top-notch. Some of the best french fries on earth. Gotta admit that. That's fair. That's fair, yeah. At City Field, they're pretty horrible. As In terms of drink, I'm a Coors man. When those mountains are blue, you can give them t- to you. Give them to me. <laughs> That was terrible. I've had a, a bit of an unexpected food renaissance in the last year. I found out a couple months ago that I have a gluten sensitivity, and that has completely rocked my world in terms of eating food at the ballpark. Before that, I loved the Pat Lafrida sandwiches. Like, that was my go-to. They're bomb. Or I would just get the nice premio sausage with that. And then I would always try and find a snack at some point in the game. I like the cookies that City Field puts out there. I like the um the little the Arancini Bros, the rice balls that they have out there. Those are always a winner. And then I I always just bounce around between like some of the the IPAs that City Field has, the Brooklyn Brewery, a hazy one's good, the Hop Valley one's good, or I would just have a nice Vizzy, nice tall boy Vizzy. Get 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 the mind rolling right. But now since I can't eat gluten anymore, I can't have fun. I can't be happy. I'm not bloated, which is really cool, but they have like a little kind of secretly tucked away in around like the left field area, around the right field area. City Field has like the World Trade Fair and they have a bunch of like a whole gluten-free section. They have corn breaded tenders that really aren't that bad at all. They have burgers, turkey burgers, regular hamburgers with gluten-free buns. And what I've been eating a lot at the game, sushi. The sushi at City Field is actually really fucking good. It's not cheap at all, which sucks ass. You're paying like $15 for, I think, 
six or eight pieces of like California roll or, or spicy tuna or whatever. But it's quality food. It's you eat that and you're good. We talked to someone with the organization and said they bring it in from a restaurant in Corona every single day. And there's it's a good area for Asian food out there, so it's not bad. Also, I Mark knows this. Some people maybe follow me more so closely on Twitter know this. I love bringing wild food to the ballpark. I've yeah. always since I was young. I bring crazy shit to the game. I come with a nice drawstring bag, and I'm locked and loaded with snacks, food, bottle of water, my own Cracker Jacks. Like, I love bringing stuff to the ballpark. Yeah, James is a, uh, a th- I don't, is thrifty the right word? Frugal, thrifty, yeah. Yeah, frugal, thrifty, whatever it is. James will bring it to the ballpark if they allow him to. Last question here comes from Sam Hansen at BotGhost21. This has nothing to do with baseball at all. What's your guys' favorite dessert? I'm going to let you go first. This one cracked me the fuck up. I was just like scrolling through these before I was losing my mind with the uh, what's your favorite dessert? Like this guy was probably just like eating dessert at that moment. I was like, I wonder what Mark and James' favorite desserts are. I'm a chocolate man. I've always been a chocolate man. A double chocolate cake or like a nice gooey chocolate chip cookie or like a nice chip witch. Two chocolate chip cookies with some ice cream in between. Those are my go-to. I eat, like the hot, the hot dessert, chocolate with vanilla ice cream. It doesn't get better than that. See, I'm in such a weird conundrum. You talked about your gluten intolerance. I no longer eat dairy, and I no longer eat chocolate because chocolate gives me pimples, and dairy gives me the runs. So we avoid those at all costs. So vanilla ice cream, which was one of my favorite things on this planet, can't eat that anymore. And icebox cake, which is chocolate pudding with graham crackers layered on top of each other. It's like a chocolate pudding lasagna. That stuff is crack. That is like one of my favorite things on this planet. Now that I don't get to eat it, I will simply go to a really, really boring uh, dessert, which isn't even a dessert. It's just a sweet, give me gummy bears. I'll pound pounds of gummy bears in one sitting and i'll be happy that's all i need and i'll be a happy man yeah i mean this this question is kind of gonna devolve into like what's your bodega run look like yeah and gummy bears are almost always in my bodega run yeah i'm big like smoothie smoothie and pretzel guy peanut m&ms too peanut m&ms oh my god you guys can learn a lot about me and james here just by what our bodega runs are the (laughs) fact that james can gets a smoothie i've never considered a smoothie once in my life at a bodega (laughs) no i mean the one by your house is a great freaking smoothies over there shout out the gourmet deli well don't tell people where i live you know how many gourmet delis are in new york city dude all right, fine, fine. Like a shout thousand gourmet, gourmet delis. delis in, yeah, shout out to gourmet deli. Even. Gourmet deli everywhere, but... I'm leaving in a month, whatever. Yes, right, who cares? Me too, this place, whatever. But also, we've noticed that a lot of you guys did have a lot of questions about trades. We're going to talk a lot about trades in the future. It's just, it's still too early to do that. Once July yeah. rolls around, we're probably going to designate an entire half of an episode to trade discussion and where we can realistically see see the Mets going, see who realistically will be sellers. There was some question about the Red Sox selling. The Red Sox are one of the hottest teams in baseball right now. We still don't really know the lay of the land yet in terms of what's the end of the season going to look like and who is going to be available and how much they're going to cost. So we're going to get to these trade questions soon, but not until the calendar turns to July. Definitely. Definitely. Maybe we'll uh, we'll have some fun. Maybe we'll see what MLB The Show agrees with some of the trades that we come up with as well. That's a good idea. Yeah, I think that'll be a fun one. All right, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Dodgers preview. We got four games, right, out in LA? Like, what oh, the yeah. fuck is that? I don't know. I can't I can't believe we didn't have this Thursday off. I was so prepared for this Thursday off. I didn't realize we were playing on Thursday until earlier Wednesday. It's absolutely messed up that we're flying to LA to play arguably the best team in baseball. Granted, they are coming off a horrendous series, and we're coming off a really, really hot one. I would love to know the pitching matchups, though. That will be fun, even though we're, we're pitching everybody who was in Carlos Carrasco. Pitching matchups are a little bit interesting in this one. 
Thursday night, Taiwan Walker against Tony Gonsolin. Tony Gonsolin, statistically, has been the Dodgers' best starting pitcher so far this season. Seems to really be coming into his own, but also still has the massive problems with control that he's always had. And I'm hoping that this very patient Mets lineup, especially at the top, will be able to chase him, especially after a series with the Pirates where, shockingly, the Dodgers' bullpen was taxed. So let's see if we can get into that. They also don't have an off day. Friday night, only game of the series where I can look at the game and be like, I think the Mets have an advantage here. Of course, I'm sure the Mets will lose this one after I said that. Chris Bassett versus Tyler Anderson. Tyler Anderson had an incredible month of May. Eighth highest K-minus walk rate in all of baseball in the month of May. Wow. How crazy is that? That is that's unbelievably yeah. crazy. Throwing like between 40 and 50% of change-ups, which have always been his best pitch. Leave it to the Dodgers to get a new gear of Tyler Anderson, someone they picked up for free. Saturday evening, three straight night games here, 10, 10, 10 o'clock. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. David Peterson versus Walker Bueller. That feels like a bad one. That does. But also, Walker Bueller hasn't been that good this year. His fastball in his last start got no whiffs against the Pirates. I think that just might be Walker Bueller. I don't know, dude. That wasn't Walker Bueller last year or the year before. I think that there is something that either people have figured out about Walker Bueller or maybe just like the shape of the pitch has gotten away from him. I don't know. Something weird going on. But I have a a fun take about Walker Bueller that's going to fit this agenda. I just don't think he was particularly ever as good as we all thought. I think it was a Dodgers effect. I don't think that's true. I think I, I think, think you it look is back at those last few years because he was really no. Good. I know, but he never was in the top of K rate. Never. No, of he course was, not. But there's always great and pitchers. He, and he did. And he did walk guys. He didn't really do the stuff that we all love for modern pitchers. But for some reason, everybody was enamored because he pitched seven innings, which is really a managerial decision at the end of the day. Yeah. All right. I don't hate that take. We don't have enough time here to delve into the Walker Bueller debate right now, though. And then Sunday, four o'clock game. Trevor Williams versus Julio Urias, which is also just like, I don't like reading those names. Yeah, Julio Urias feels like a guy who's just going to shut us down because, of course. He hasn't been that good this year, though, either. He's really struggled to maintain the velocity he showed last year. His curveball hasn't had the same bite. He looks like a guy who never threw more than 70 innings in a season, and last year threw 180. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, while we know that the Dodgers pitching has always been strong, this offense, though is kind of nuts, especially when Mookie Betts is playing like one of the best players in the league again. This offense is not nuts. This offense is fucked up. You have to start the game and you have to face, in order, Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Trey Turner. And then you also have guys like Max Muncie and Justin Turner and Chris Taylor, who I know Turner and Muncie aren't necessarily playing well this year, just like Bellinger isn't. But I feel like you'd be foolish to think that these guys are still talented. Muncie's on the IL. Did you say Muncie? Yeah, is Muncie on the IL? Yeah, he went on the IL early this week. Oh, great. We get to face Edwin Rios, who's sick. Edwin Rios also, though, he he is kind of sick like in a wide-scope view, like especially for my fantasy baseball players out there. Edwin Rios is good production, going to have some good production these next few weeks, but he's not a good fielder anywhere. He came in to play third base in the top of the ninth inning in the Dodgers game on Wednesday against the Pirates, and the Pirates literally pointed to him and said, we're going to hit you the ball. And they forced him to make plays, and he could. they were they bunted two batters in a row, and he couldn't make either play. I give him the Alec Bohm treatment. So he, I mean, he is good. Just the fact that he's the Dodgers' like depth piece is pretty unbelievable. We're also going to see Kevin Pillar. He start, He got called up by the Dodgers. We're going to see old friend the series, which is funny. Gross. Kevin yeah. Pillar, Jesus. Kevin Lux is playing decent ball. Like This, this lineup just, they never let you get a second to breathe. Will Smith is not hitting well, but we know what he's capable of. Like you, There's yeah. no there's no moment of relaxation in this lineup. Trey Turner, I think, has a 24-game 
game hit streak going on right now. Yeah. Mookie Betts has 16 home runs because, of course, he does. And I think Mookie Betts only had, like, two home runs in April, too. So yeah, and also, he's saw, on a tear. I saw a crazy Mookie Betts stat from Christopher Kamka, who does, uh, I think, stats for NBC Sports Chicago the other day. Mookie Betts is the first player since 1985 to have scored 50 runs before his team had played 50 games. Yeah, it's gross. That's that's fucked up. Last guy did was Ricky Henderson in 1985. That's pretty good. Pretty good company to be in. He's an MVP candidate. The Dodgers right now currently have three MVP candidates to start the game. Hey, so do the Mets. Yeah, sure. So the Mets, Pete Alonso, Francisco Lindor, Brand Nimmo, and you know we have a fourth. You want to know what his name is? I have an idea. Guess. Luis Guillorme. Luis fucking Guillorme, baby. Let's go. Oh, man. I can't wait to watch Luis Guillorme against the team. But yeah, you know what? The series is house money for the Mets. Play team baseball. Get some hits. Draw some walks. Get to this bullpen. That's good, but it's not great. Just figure it out. See what you could do. We couldn't. We, I don't even think we won one game in LA last year. So f- fuck it. Beat that. Or maybe DeGrom won the one. I, I Listen, I have, I have faith in this team. This team's played so well over this entirety of the season. Do I think that this is going to be an easy series? No, but do I think that the Mets are incapable of taking this series or even, you know, splitting it? Absolutely. Of course, they're really, really good. I'm just on the Mets schedule page right now, and they have the whole schedule mapped out for a few weeks. And looking ahead, Sunday, June 12th, Sunday Night Baseball, the Mets are slated to face off against Noah Syndergaard. Oh, man. I wish we were in L.A. for that. That'd be really cool to be in Anaheim for that one. <laughs> that would be that would be a nice game to get out for. I hope someone's listening. Yeah, hopefully hopefully uh, some of that big news that we're teasing. Maybe they're, maybe they're listening. <laughs> Pray. <laughs> I feel bad teasing this for two full months. It sucks. I'm sorry, guys, but we're yeah. going to have some soon. The dude I met in North Carolina today is like, what is the news? And I was like, I can't tell you. He's like, you've been saying this for two months. I'm like, I know. I'm so excited, but I can't say anything. Soon. Literally gave someone legitimate blue balls it's it's crazy (laughs) it's amazing (laughs) but anyway guys i think that's a perfect way to wrap up episode number 97 of the Mets up podcast thank you for listening you didn't watch it because there's no video but thanks for (laughs) listening (laughs) if you're listening to us apple podcast spotify google podcast wherever you find us drop us a rating drop us a review follow james on twitter at jeter had no range follow me at giraffe nick mark with a c and that's where we'll wrap it up guys thanks for being here and we'll see you after the dodgers series peace out peace out guys see you next time 